trying to further our change in the Lord by studying His Word. And I'd like you to open your Bible to Luke chapter 19. Those of you who may be visiting or new, perhaps you've been here for a long time and you still don't know what we do. We like to study God's Word verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the Bible. We are in Luke chapter 19. We're going to look at verses 11 through 27 this morning, a study that I'm calling Mina Your Own Business. Mina your own business. Okay. If you don't like that, how about this? Nothing could be finer than to multiply your mina. No? That's a good one. How many do you know that? How know what the parody there is that there's a song, Nothing Could Be Finer Than to Be in Carolina in the Morning? Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. I had a good smattering. Some of the older crowd. No, that's not true. I just couldn't resist. I know what you're thinking now. Mine your own business. But uh, I guess I should open my Bible. Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. Now, as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore, he said... A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, Do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money, to be called to him that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little, have authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, You also be over five cities. Then another came saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you because you are an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, out of your own mouth, I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank that at my coming I might at least have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten minas. But they said to him, Master, he has ten minas. For I say to you that to everyone who has will be given, and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. But bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them. Slay them before me. Let's pray together. Lord, it's... It is with a sense of trembling, excitement, and anticipation that we read your word and then study it because it is alive and powerful. It is the power of God unto salvation. It changes us and it goes on changing us throughout our journey towards heaven. And so we pray, Lord, that it would have its effect as we hear it and then have spiritual ears to hear. Lord, whether there are believers or unbelievers, that your spirit would be at work in our hearts 
We know that your word is spiritually discerned. We need the spirit to open it up to us. We can't understand it in any other way, but you're here to give us that sense of understanding. And so make things absolutely clear this morning. We pray in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. I took Dr. Phil's online quiz. No, I did. You know I have problems, and so I'm looking for help. It's a real quiz. It's given by the Human Resources Department of many major corporations today. I scored 49. Great, considering Oprah only scored 38. According to Dr. Phil, and I quote, others see you as fresh, charming, amusing, practical, and always interesting. Someone who constantly is in the center of attention. But sufficiently well-balanced not to let it go to their head. They also see you as kind, considerate, and understanding. Someone who will always cheer them up and help them out. And that is so right on. Until I realized that these quizzes are not scientific, and they're certainly not spiritual. Here's an example. One of his quizzes, he asked this question, are you a giver or a taker? You have to choose one or the other. What would you say? Well, of course you want to choose giver, but if you're honest, you'd probably have to say both. Let's ask that question a different way. Let's ask it of God. Is God a giver or a taker? I'll give you a clue. This is what Job said about God. Job chapter 1 verse 21, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Sounds as though God is both a giver and a taker and that's true. But there's also a catch. Job said, blessed be the name of the Lord. Whether God gives or whether he takes away, you are to go on blessing his name. In the parable we've read, one servant gets slammed because he only thought of his master as a taker. The master gave him a mina, but he hid it away because of his feeling and belief that his master would demand it and anything he either gained or lost by it. I can see myself in that servant, and I see a lot of other believers too. We sometimes think of God as a taker. Fear grips our hearts. We become spiritually paralyzed and we do nothing to grow in our faith or go forth sharing our faith. I want to put God's giving and taking into perspective. We'll organize our thoughts around two questions. Number one, do you see God as a giver? Or number two, do you see God as a taker? Let's take a look first of all in verses 11 through 19. Do you see God as a giver? There's a lot going on in this parable. It furthers our understanding of many topics, Bible prophecy, the postponement of the kingdom of God on earth, the second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth, the rewards of believers, the punishment of unbelievers, and the present lost condition of Israel as a nation. I was most struck this week by something else within the parable itself. I was struck with the description of God's nature by both the good servants and the wicked servants. We'll see the good servants motivated in their investing by a proper understanding of what God is like. 
and will see the wicked servant motivated in his lack of investing by an improper understanding of what God is like. And so in verse 11, let's pick up the story. As they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Jesus has been talking about the kingdom of God. He's now leaving Jericho. He's just 17 miles from Jerusalem. His disciples and other followers thought that he was going to Jerusalem to overthrow Roman rule and reestablish Israel as a sovereign nation. They did not yet realize he would be rejected by the religious authorities and crucified. The establishing of the kingdom of God on earth would therefore be delayed. He told this parable to put the delay into perspective. And therefore he said, verse 12, A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, Do business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. Very simple parable. The nobleman represents Jesus. Heaven was the far country in that he would be crucified, rise from the dead, and then ascend into heaven. After an absence from the earth that has now lasted about 2,000 years, he will return to establish the kingdom in what the Bible calls the second coming. And his citizens did hate him. Speaking specifically, if you would, of, of the Jews, it wouldn't be too long after this statement that the Jews would say, we have no king but Caesar. Crucify him. There are two types of people mentioned in this parable. Servants and citizens. The servants seem to represent believers who are expected to go about doing spiritual business until Jesus comes back. The citizens clearly are unbelievers. They hate the Lord and reject his right to reign over them. And whether you are an unbeliever who adamantly, openly hates Jesus, or you just don't know him, you don't love him, he's not your savior, this is the only other group for you. You're either a servant, a believer, or a citizen of this earth, an unbeliever. Let's not get too bogged down in the details, not just yet. Let's just put ourselves in the parable. You want to be who in this parable? One of the citizens? No. The wicked servant? No. You want to be one of the good servants. Here's how you do it. Verse 15. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom... He then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know how much every man had gained by their trading. Jesus is coming back. There, there are, I think, remembrances or, or points in all of our life that, that we continue to emphasize because they were meaningful to us. And, and I, I like to remind people whenever we have a chance and we're going through the scripture that there is such a thing as the return of Jesus Christ in his second coming. I grew up, I've told you many times, that I grew up in a religious tradition. It was a Roman Catholic tradition. Uh, and, and yet, it wasn't until I was in college that I had my first understanding that Jesus was coming back a second time. I'd been baptized as an infant. I'd gone to confession. 
I'd uh, taken First Holy Communion. I'd been confirmed in the church. And I was in a college class, philosophy and literature, with Professor Jim Biffle. And we were studying a poem by William Butler Yeats, the great Irish poet, called The Circus Animal's Desertion. What's up with that? I don't know. But we would study these poems and try and figure out what the poet was saying in the poems. And there was a line in the poem that I was struggling with. It had to do with the words, second coming. No matter how much I analyzed or used my brilliant intellect, I couldn't figure it out. Finally, I called him. I can remember. I can actually see myself calling him on a Saturday morning at home. I said, Professor Biffle, I'm just, I'm stuck. I can't get this. What is the second coming? And he said to me, now here he is. He's a college professor. He's an atheist. And he says to me, oh, some Christians believe that Jesus Christ is going to come back a second time to this planet and establish a kingdom. And I remember saying, no, they don't. <laughs> and he goes, Gene, oh, yes, they do. And I said, well, I'm a Roman Catholic background. I've never heard that. And he goes, yes, they do. And I looked into it, and yes, they do. <laughs> and so I, I found over the years that a lot of times people who have a Christian or, or, or a semi-Christian background, they, you talk about the second coming as if we all understood that, and no one really knows what you're talking about. Jesus Christ, who ascended from this earth after his resurrection, he's received the kingdom. And he's coming back a second time, literally, physically, to rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years. When he returns to reign as king upon the earth, he'll establish that kingdom. You can read all about it in the revelation of Jesus Christ, especially verses, or chapters 6 through 19. Now, Jesus will review the lives of his servants throughout the ages. His review happens at different times, depending upon when you see Jesus. You and I are part of what the Bible calls the church. If you die, you are absent from your body, but you are immediately present with the Lord. At some point, Jesus promised to rapture the church. He will literally remove living believers off of the planet, catching them away to heaven. Those who have died prior to that and those who are raptured will all then stand before the Lord for a review this review is with regard to rewarding you for your life and its service. It is sometimes simply called the reward seat of Jesus, or if you want to blow the intellectual minds of your friends, you can just call it the bima of Jesus. Bima is the Greek word that means reward seat, not beamer like BMW. And you're thinking, yeah, the beamer, that's what I'll take. But it'll help you to remember because it is a reward, and, and, uh, but it's the bema of Jesus. Now, there's another review at the second coming of Jesus. All the people who somehow survive the tribulation will be brought to the Lord. He will separate them. The believers enter the kingdom on earth in their human bodies as its first citizens. The unbelievers will be cast alive into Hades to await their final judgment. Then at the end of the 1,000-year kingdom of God on earth, all unbelievers from all through human history will be brought to stand before the Lord at a place called the Great White Throne. Having rejected Jesus Christ as their Savior in life, they have no hope in their death. 
They are cast alive into and remain eternally, eternally alive in the lake of fire, what we would commonly refer to as hell. Each of the servants in our parable receive the same amount to invest. And so we're not talking about talents or abilities or gifts. They were all given the same amount exactly. It seems to represent the fact that they were saved. Then they were called upon to serve the Lord from that point forward with their new lives. And they could invest their salvation. They could work out their salvation. They could do with their lives what they wished in order to please the Lord. And by the way, the parable is not primarily about money either. Money and how you use it is just one part of your whole life and your lifestyle as a Christian. It would touch upon your use of money as a Christian, but not limited to that. The Lord is going to review your entire life as a Christian. And so in verse 16, then came the first saying, Master, your mina has earned ten. And he said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant, because you were faithful in a very little. Have authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, you also be over five cities. Now, we sometimes get lost in the math because we think in terms of earning the greater reward. I want to put that aside for a moment and notice what I think is a key word in this section when it's spoken by the good servants. It is the word your, Y-O-U-R. The first two servants, the good servants, said to the Lord with real feeling and meaning, your mina has earned. They recognized and acknowledged that everything they had was a gift from their Lord. Whatever they had to invest, it had been given to them. They saw their Lord as a giver, and they went forward from that point. Do you believe that everything that happens in your life must first be approved by and then allowed by your Heavenly Father? Of course you do. And since you do, you can see everything as given to you to invest as a part of your serving him on earth. Remember our quote from Job? He said this, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job said, The Lord gives. When you first encounter Job, he has been allowed many things. He has health and wealth and prosperity in every area of his life. You're not even a chapter into the book. You're just a few verses down before God approves and allows the devil to take away from Job. But Job still blesses God. The point I'd like you to consider is this. Whatever God approves and allows, it is to be received as a gift from him. If God gives you things like health and wealth and prosperity, they're gifts to be received and invested serving him with your life and its lifestyle. And just a warning we could tack on to that. Many of us have been and are being blessed. The children of Israel in the Old Testament were always in their greatest peril when they were being abundantly blessed physically and financially because they had a tendency to praise themselves and move away from God. Forget that every good and perfect gift came from above. If God takes away from you things like health and wealth and prosperity, which many of you would have a testimony that he does, 
They too are gifts to be received and invested serving him. A good example in the scripture would be the Apostle Paul. Many consider him the greatest example of a Christian that is really given to us on the pages of scripture. The Apostle Paul prayed to the Lord about what he called a thorn in his flesh. He had some really huge problem, a physical infirmity that was just really difficult for him. And he prayed to the Lord. The Lord refused to remove it. Instead, he let Paul know that he had approved it and he was allowing it. And so Paul described it by saying, it has been given to me. He began to understand it as a gift. He understood it as God's gift to be invested. He went on to talk about some of God's other gifts, infirmities, reproaches, necessities, and distresses. In other passages, he described gifts of weariness, painfulness, watchings, hunger and thirst, and nakedness. He spoke, too, of various perils. Beyond those, he listed the following as gifts. Five times he was given 39 lashes by the Jews. That means that they tied him to the post and they whipped him. The law allowed for 40 lashes, but they would always count to 39 because they didn't want to go beyond the law. They wanted to be merciful. Five times Paul was whipped with 39 lashes. Three times he was beaten with rods. I think in the, there's countries that still do this. They call it caning. And uh, it's not a little spanking with a paddle. It's a beating with rods. One time he was stoned as they picked up rocks and they threw them at him. And and many believe that he actually died from that stoning and, and was raised from the dead. Three times he was shipwrecked. One of those left him bobbing up and down in the sea for a night and a day. All these and more were given to Paul, he said, as an investment. He only knew God as a giver. If things were taken away, it was a gift to be used to the glory of God. God may give you an abundance, or he may give you times of being abased. There are times in your life when God seems to be giving. Many of us are experiencing, or you have experienced, you will experience, times when God will take something away from you. A loved one, a relationship your health, it is in those times that we could need to echo the words of Job, the Lord giveth and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What he's taken from you, he sees as a gift. Very difficult for us, impossible, let's let's face it. But we don't see the end. Remember I talked this morning about the changes that the Lord wants to make in us. He wants to make us more like Jesus. He that has begun that work will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. By the time we get to heaven, we won't care anymore about the minor details of our life. But if we could get there and look back with the Lord over our life and say, Lord, why did that person die just then? Why did I receive this disease just then? What about this tragedy? What about that trouble or that trial? We'd be able to look back and see how it perfectly fit into the puzzle and plan of our life to bring us that much further into the image of Jesus Christ, to create in us what it is that we really pray for. And so we step back with these two servants and we say, Lord, whatever you've done, you've given it to us. Some of us he's given abundance. Some of us he's given times of abasing.
but they are his gifts. Our attention turns to this third servant. He had a very different understanding of his master and his gifts. We ask the question, do you see God as a taker? Then another came, verse 20, saying, Master, here's your mina, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you because you are an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, Out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money in the bank that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? This guy was so afraid of his master that he didn't even think to put the mina where it could at least earn some interest. He simply hid it. Handkerchief seems funny, but who looks in somebody else's handkerchief, really? The master quoted the servant's words back to him. He wasn't agreeing with the servant's assessment. He was establishing that it was the servant's understanding of his master's nature that paralyzed him with the fear of my cell phone going off, right? I heard it. We can argue later about whether or not the wicked servant represents those who only profess to know Jesus and are not truly saved or whether he represents believers who are saved but suffer a loss of reward when they stand before the Lord. For now, I just want to concentrate on the point Jesus was making. The servant thought of his master only as a taker. When the master returned, the servant thought that at the very least he would take back the mina he had been given. If the mina earned anything, the master would certainly want the profit. If the mina was reduced, if he lost money, then he thought the master would want him to make up the difference to at least get back to his original gift. Now, we've just seen the incredible generosity of the master. When the master left, he said, here's, ten, here's a mina, invest it, do business with it. He didn't say, for every mina that you increase, I'm going to give you a city and make you the mayor over it or the regent over it. He didn't say it. He just said, here, here's a mina. And the two servants understood it as a gift because they knew their master as a giver and they trusted in his generosity. This third servant, though, didn't. He had a very different impression of who his Lord was. I'm not saying it's easy to bless the Lord as he takes away, but in his strength, it becomes possible and it is necessary. And so verse 24, he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to him who has 10 minas. But they said to him, master, he has 10. For I say to you that to everyone who has will be given from him who does not have even what he has will be taken away from him. Taking the mina away is not equivalent to losing your salvation. It is simply the logical conclusion of the story. It seems to indicate that you remain a servant, you're in the master's household, but you're going to suffer the loss of any rewards. It's consistent with what you read in the Bible regarding the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. If you appear there, you are saved and cannot be lost, but you can suffer the loss of reward depending on how you invested your life and your lifestyle. Verse 27, but bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Jesus will deal decisively with unbelievers, first at his second coming and then at the great white throne. 
For our purposes, this verse reminds you that even though he is currently absent from earth and away in heaven, Jesus is indeed the Lord and should be served. You should be investing all he gives, whether it's in the category of giving to you or it's in the category of taking something away from you. It is still his gift. Now, a lot of people, they have trouble with the verses like this because, you know, bring the enemies and kill them. God seems so harsh, doesn't he? God is long-suffering. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's on the pages of the Old Testament. It's on the pages of the New Testament. Anybody who comes into a real relationship with God begins to understand the grace and the mercy of God, how much he desires the salvation of sinners. But there is coming a time when that long-suffering will end. It's not that God gets fed up. It's not that he gets super angry or anything like that. It's just that there's a, there's a point at which his long-suffering must end. And he will end the suffering on this planet. You know, it's a very, very common, probably the most common complaint or argument of unbelievers. If there's a God... Why is there so much suffering in the world? Have you heard that? You've heard it on television or people have said that to you. Larry King, the other night I was telling you about that program I watched with the different pastors and that was one of his key points. He asked it in the guise of why didn't God stop such and such event if he's God? I have a new answer to that, by the way. The next time somebody says who's an unbeliever and they say, why does God allow suffering? You look at them and you say, because of you. You're the reason that God allows suffering. And once they collect themselves, you say, here's why. Because God is long-suffering. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Have you come to repentance? No. The suffering in the world continues because of you. Because God is waiting for you to get saved. You might be the last person that's going to get saved before the rapture of the church. And then the rapture will take place and the tribulation will start and God will begin to give men one last opportunity to turn to him and be saved. And then man, is he going to come back and he's going to deal with it. And there won't be any suffering when he's done with his program. And so in the meantime, it's your fault. God is willing, but you are not. Now it's a stretch, but it's interesting. And in a very interesting way, it is true. It is a truth because God is waiting. He is portrayed in Scripture as waiting for sinners to turn to him. Sure, a lot of horrible things are going to happen today. I was on a website the other day. It was it's kind of freaky. It was, a, it was a Christian website where it had a statistic about how many people are dying and going to hell every day. And then it had a counter that was just going like crazy, you know, telling you how many people were dying every second. We live in a terrible world, a sin-sick world, and God will do something about it. In the meantime, he's waiting. Some of you, you're glad he waited until today because today is a day that you can receive Jesus Christ. I'm glad that he didn't come before 1979 because I wouldn't have been a Christian. And so we need to put God's allowing suffering into the perspective of the fact that you're born with sin. And he's done everything that is possible to deal with that and is waiting now, long-suffering towards sinners. It's only normal and natural when something is taken away from you to first think of God as a taker. 
But it is the new normal and it is supernatural to adjust your perspective and see adversity and affliction as something being given to you. You can serve the Lord in your suffering and invest it with the hope of receiving tenfold or fivefold in heaven. Now, why the difference in return on your investment? Why do some get greater reward than others? I can't say for sure, but there are two things I would suggest this morning. First, whatever your reward, it will be way beyond what's fair since you don't deserve anything anyway. And we will all be in heaven with Jesus for eternity and we'll be perfect with perfect natures that can't sin. And so it really is not going to bother you if somebody has a hundred more mansions than you or however that translates. Because you'll just go over there and visit anyway. And everything will, will kind of be equal in that sense. Not minimizing the reward aspect of it. I don't think I have to because we're kind of a people that's driven to seek reward and to, to just want to do what is pleasing. But it, it really won't matter in the long run. Second, God seems to give some believers a very much more difficult journey throughout their life on earth. Some of you just have a really difficult time. And some of us don't. I've been very healthy most of my life. I've been wonderfully blessed as a believer with an excellent wife, with wonderful kids. I've got a great son-in-law. I've got a great daughter-in-law-to-be. We have a tremendous church. When I get to heaven, if God decides to give someone whose life was filled with suffering from day one, five or ten or a hundred times more reward than I receive, I think it's going to be okay with me. And it would be okay with you as well. And so the, the parable is not really about how to get f ten times more or five times more. It's, it's about how to look at God and whether or not you look at him as a giver of all good things. As the one who only gives good things no matter what category they're in. Or whether you drop into thinking that God is a taker. And sometimes we do that as Christians. Because he does take. And we need to break out of that. We need to bust out of that. We need to proclaim with Job. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. So blessed be the name of the Lord. And you know the real purpose, of, or one of the real purposes of the book of Job is though Job knew God, he didn't know him as personally, as wonderfully, as intimately as he might. And by the end of the book, after his suffering. He says, I knew you by the hearing of the ear, but now I know you. He had come into a deeper, closer walk with the Lord. Hey, that's what we all want. And God knows your nature. He knows your heart. He knows you individually. He formed you fearfully and wonderfully in your mother's womb. And, and the reason that different things happen in different people's lives is because you are so unique and special in that sense. And though we suffer in common ways, there are uncommon things that go on in each of our lives. And it doesn't do any good to compare yourself to anybody else. Only to begin to see God as only the giver of good things. Even when they're in the category of, of bad things that you wouldn't normally want to receive. We are all wanting to be brought to that understanding of the Apostle Paul. Okay, Lord, you're going to give me suffering. You're going to take something good away from me. Then I will receive it as a gift. You know that I need it. It must be the only thing that can bring me closer to Jesus. It must be the way that you have ordained for me to be carved out 
so that when you're done and I stand face to face with the Lord, we, we resemble each other. You know, there's those scenes in movies where people look at each other and they say, you know, uh, my mom said I look just like you. Uh, the resemblance is amazing. And the person, you know, he's got teeth coming out of his ears and stuff like that. And the other guy's real handsome and stuff. There's a sense, you know, the Bible says we're being changed from glory to glory into the image of Jesus Christ. And I don't want to get too weird about this, but when you look into the face of Jesus Christ, the idea is that you kind of look like him. You've become like him throughout your life. You're seeing yourself in a way reflected because that's the work that God is doing, wants to do, and will complete in you. If you're a believer... The Lord's going to give you a lot of things, and he's going to take a lot of things away. They're gifts. The parable mentioned ten servants. Only three were brought before the Lord. Did you notice that? What about the other seven? Well, in the life of the parable, they're really inconsequential. But two things come to mind if you're worried about them. First, the other seven would have either been like the first two good servants or like the one wicked servant. There was no third category. They either uh, invested and gained or they held back. Second, it's interesting to note that in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, there are how many churches? There's seven churches that Jesus writes letters to. The seven churches represent all believers of our church age from the resurrection of Jesus until the rapture of the church. And so the Lord is simply telling us, hey, we're those seven servants. Wherever you are in church history, wherever you are in the church as a Christian at any time, you're that unnamed servant, one of those seven. And it's up to you to determine which category you belong in. You either believe God is a giver or that it's a taker. Now, maybe you're not a Christian. Well, there's only one other group left in the parable. You realize that. You're either a servant or you're a citizen. And you don't want to be one of the citizens. A citizen is just somebody who didn't want Lord, the Lord to rule over them. And as I said earlier, these hated him because he was looking forward to the hatred of the Jews. But you don't have to openly hate Jesus to reject his rule over you. And so if Jesus is not your Lord, if he is not ruling your life, just ask yourself, do I, do I ask Jesus what I should be doing? Am I living for the Lord? Am I reading God's word? Do I go to church or did I just get drugged here today by a family member or friend? Or have I fallen away from that? I mean, it's not a hard question. Is Jesus the Lord of your life? If he's not, you might not hate him, but you're only a citizen of this world. You haven't entered into the realm of being a servant. And man, I don't need to tell you, you don't want to be in that category. This is absolutely the worst category to be in. Better to say I'm a wicked servant than I'm a citizen who doesn't know the Lord. Because you will suddenly and decisively be judged by the Lord unless you acknowledge you're a sinner and receive him as your savior from sin. But good news, he can save you, he wants to, and you can immediately begin to invest your new life serving him. He's coming back. We've established that. There are eight times more references to the second coming of Jesus than there are to his first coming. He's coming back. And one of the last things Jesus says in the book of Revelation is that I am coming back and my reward is with me. 
Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for these things. What a generous heart you have to share with us, Lord. The servants in the parable, you gave them a mina apiece, equivalent to a few months' wages. You didn't promise them anything, Lord. And yet they believed, two of them, that it was a gift, and they went about investing it. And when you came back, you were mind-blowingly generous. That's the picture that you want to leave us with today, that you are a generous, giving God. It's hard for us, Lord, to embrace because part of your giving is taking away. We don't see it as a gift, but we need to. And with the help of your Holy Spirit, who lives in us, we can. And Lord, I do want to say a word to the unbelievers that are here today. There may be one or more, I don't know. Lord, they need to get right with you before it's too late. We joked a little bit before, but it's kind of true. They're the reason that you are delaying your coming because you want them to come into the kingdom of God. You want them to be saved, not lost for eternity. And so I pray that you would impress yourself upon their hearts strongly this morning. Come into their hearts and lives, Lord, as they would call out to you. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Maybe you're here this morning and you are an unbeliever. You couldn't honestly say that Jesus Christ was ruling your life. If that's the case, some of the guys in our fellowship, some of the leaders, they'll be down here up front immediately after the service or as the service closes. And just make your way down and introduce yourself to them. And just be honest and say, look, I'm not a Christian. But the Lord brought me here today and has brought me to this point in my life so that I will meet him. You know, if Jesus Christ is alive, if he's risen from the dead, you can meet him. You can know him. And that's what we're offering. We're not asking you to join our church. We're asking you to know Christ. And so if that describes you, if you're not a Christian, man, woman, doesn't matter how old you are, just make your way down here so that we can share that with you and pray with you. Maybe you're a backslidden Christian. You can't say that Jesus is the Lord of your life. You know you're saved. Perhaps even something that the Lord has taken from you has been blocking your relationship with Him. Come, confess your sin one to another, and let that prayer release you to serve Him again. Have a rededication. Maybe you're doing all right, but you just feel like you need strength and help this morning in some area of your life. We'd love to share with you, pray with you keep track of what's going on. And so just avail yourself of that ministry that can take place here uh, at the front of the church. Come down, wait, be patient, and um, pray with the guys. For the rest of us, the week is going to unfold. If the Lord doesn't come back in the imminently in the next few minutes or later on as we expect Him, then uh, Wednesday morning the men will be together again in the cafe for a time of fellowship at 6.30. Wednesday night, our midweek fellowship. Thursday afternoons, the jewel of our ministry now, the bulletin folding party that takes place, Uh, free blended drinks, I mean it doesn't get any better than that, 3 o'clock on Thursday afternoons, there's a men's fellowship that's meeting on Saturday mornings, uh, and then we'll be back together again Sunday, so God bless and keep you, in Jesus' name.